go and grab your Bibles and open them to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. And before we dive into the text this morning, I just wanted to say the reason why we're able to sit in the shade with the canopies here, be able to sit in these foldable chairs and have a setup that we did even this morning is because of our volunteers, uh, members of this church that were willing to wake up, get here on time at 8.15 sharp every single week, faithfully serving us for now close to a year. Can we just thank them for their faithful service to us? We're deeply, deeply grateful for you, and, and you have been a grace to us. Uh, this morning, things were nearly on fire, and uh, because of our volunteers, we were able to still meet and start on time and meditate on God's word together. So, so brothers and sisters, your sacrifice is a grace to us. Thank you for laying us um, and freeing us to be able to focus on God's word. Judges chapter 6, we're going to be reading from verse 1 to verse 24 this morning. Judges chapter 6, and it says this. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord handed them over to Midian seven years, and they oppressed Israel. Because of Midian, the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites, the Malachites, and the people of the east came and attacked them. They encamped against them and destroyed the produce of the land, even as far as Gaza. They left nothing for Israel to eat, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For the Midianites came with their cattle. And their tents like a great swarm of locusts. They and their camels were without number. And they entered the land to lay waste to it. So Israel became poverty stricken because of Midian. And the Israelites cried out to the Lord. When the Israelites cried out to him because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to them. He said to them, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you out of Egypt and out of the place of slavery. I rescued you from the power of Egypt and the power of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites whose land you live in, but you did not obey me. The angel of the Lord came. He sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite. His son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. Then the angel of the Lord appear, appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord. If the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? And where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about? They said, hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. 
the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. He said to him, Please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my family's the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my family. But I will be with you, the Lord said to him. You will strike Midian down as if it were one man. Then he said to him, If I found favor with you, give me a sign that you are speaking with me. Please do not leave this place until I return to you. Let me bring my gift and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from a half bushel of flour. He placed the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat with the unleavened bread, put it on this stone, and pour the broth on it. So he did that. The angel of the Lord extended the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire came up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. When Gideon realized that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Oh no, Lord God, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace to you. Don't be afraid, for you will not die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. It's still an Ophrah of the Bezerites today. Lord, as we meditate on your word this morning, we recognize that if we come this morning in our own wealth, in our own might, in human wisdom's fleeting light, we will be blind, unable to see, hardened to the depths of our souls. We need your help to be able to comprehend your word be able to hear from it, to be able to humble ourselves, to receive it. So we ask God that that you would help us. Help us. Help us to trust your promise that your word does not return void, even this morning. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. If I was in a zombie apocalypse, I would run towards the zombies. I would run straight toward the horde, not to fight, but to lose. The reason is because, quite frankly, if a zombie apocalypse happened, I would give up. It's hopeless. I would rather join them now than to fight to survive later. I wonder what you would do in a zombie apocalypse. Some of you would probably run to Costco. It looks like a concrete fortress with lots of survivable goods. But I'd also imagine you and 50,000 other people would all be booking towards the Costco. My plan in the past used to be that I would run to Al Hilty's house. Some of you know him. I would sit in his house. He would probably make me some iced tea, and he would just be sitting on the roof of his house with his infinite arsenal of artillery, taking care of whoever came towards his home. I'm sure many of us don't have zombie apocalypse plans. 
But sometimes, life can feel as chaotic as a zombie apocalypse. And when you feel overwhelmed by the hordes of life, what do you do? What's your plan? What are you banking on? God, in in this passage this morning, is calling us to obey him even when we feel overwhelmed. Even when we feel overwhelmed. So this is going to be the main command this morning for us to meditate on. Choose courageous obedience over cowardly convenience. Choose courageous obedience over cowardly convenience. We're going to meditate by looking at this story and seeing what happens in this book of Judges uh, in two phases. The first phase is going to be the cry. The second part of the story is going to be the call. We're going to see how God calls us towards courageous obedience over cowardly convenience. We'll begin with the cry. Let's look at verse 1. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord handed them over to Midian seven years, and they oppressed Israel. Israel does what's evil in the Lord's sight again. As we've been walking through this book, I hope this tent doesn't collapse on me. As, as, I, as we have been meditating on the book of Judges, whenever I've preached this Sunday, we could see a similar pattern happening again and again. Israel falls away from the Lord. They end up worshiping pagan gods. And then God will hand them over to a pagan king. That pagan king will then oppress the people of God. And then they will cry out to the Lord to save them. And then the Lord will raise up a deliverer to save his people. And here, again, Israel does what's evil in the Lord's sight. Just like the time with with uh, Barak and Deborah, just like the time with Ehud, and just like the time with Othniel. They do evil again and again and again. And this time, he sells them to the people of Midian. Read how, how the author of Judges describes this oppression in verse 2. Because of Midian, the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and the people of the east came and attacked them. They encamped against them and destroyed the produce of the land, even as far as Gaza. They left nothing for Israel to eat, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey, for the Midianites came with their cattle and their tents like a great swarm of locusts. They and their camels were without number, and they entered the land to lay waste to it. So Israel became poverty-stricken because of Midian. And the Israelites cried out to the Lord. Israel tries to regather their crops, start over. But everything changed when the Midian nation attacked. Not only are they under the rule of an oppressive king, but they're not able to sustain themselves. Every single time that they try to restart The Midianite troops would come up again, trample everything that they have, take everything that they own, and leave them with nothing. This Midianite occupation isn't just occupation. It's domination. And notice the language that's used here in verses 2 through 6 to describe the Midianites. It says that the Midianites were without number. 
And there are as numerous as locusts. In chapter 7, it, it describes them as numerous as a sand on the seashore. And they're destroying Israel's crop or their seed or whatever they're trying to grow. Now, when you think about a people that's without number, that's as numerous as a sand on the seashore, what, what does that remind you of? Yeah, it should remind you of Genesis 12 with Abraham. What was the promise that God gave to Abraham? That he would lead them into the land that he promised? That he would make them make him a great nation with a great number of descendants? And in chapter 15 of Genesis, God tells Abraham that his descendants will be greater than the stars in the night sky, greater than sand on the seashore. That his descendants would be without number. But here, in Judges 6, it's not the Israelites that are flourishing. The Israelites are starving to death. Instead, the group that looks like it's receiving God's covenant blessings that were promised to Abraham and his people are the Midianites. These foreign Idol worshipers are sucking the benefits of God's blessing from his people. And that's precisely, friends, how idols work. Idolatry has consequences. Idols are like parasites sucking the blessings of God from you. Idols are joy thieves. And notice what they're attacking, these Midianites. These pagan worshipers, they're attacking Israel's crops or their seed. It's as if the Midianites with their pagan practices and their idol worship and their opposition are crushing God's promises all the way back to the fall with Eve, where the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the servant. Even those promises are getting trampled to the ground because of these idols, because of these people that are oppressing the people of Israel. And all of that, all that oppression, all that hardship, all this persecution begs the question, where's God? Where is he? Is he just going to let the Israelite people waste away? Seeing your child whimper from starvation? Seeing neighbors picking through their garbage? Fearing for your life every single time that you leave a cave? Where is the Lord? Where is he? Well, the Lord acts. He speaks to them in the midst of their desperation. But this time, in chapter 6, unlike the time with Deborah and Barak or Ehud, or Othniel, instead of sending a judge, a deliverer to save the Israelites, he sends a prophet. Let's read from verse 7. When the Israelites cried out to him because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to them. He said to them, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you out of Egypt and out of the place of slavery. I rescued you from the power of Egypt and the power of all who oppressed you. 
I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites whose land you live in. But you did not obey me. Imagine being an Israelite and hearing that. I'd probably be thinking, God, that's not what we need. Israel doesn't need, or doesn't get a savior at least right away. When they cry out for pain, as people are starving to death, they don't get a savior. They don't get a a king or a warrior or even a Chick-fil-A. Instead, they get a prophet. A dinky prophet. A dude who's there to talk to them. Why? I mean, imagine holding a starving child and seeing that God sends a prophet? What about my father? What are you thinking? Do you even understand what's going on? Do you even care about us? God does care. And it isn't in this situation that God doesn't care about his people. But actually, that God sees clearer than the Israelites do. He sees clearly, whereas the Israelites do not. God knows about their physical needs. But he can see deeper than their grumbling bellies. You see, more significant than their starving stomachs were their sinful souls. God cares more about Israel's repentance than their physical well-being. Why? Because their sin is the source of their hardship. Because their sin is the source of their hardship. When, whenever we look at the cycle of Judges, we can see that once Israel returns to the Lord, the land has peace. Land flourishes, usually for a full generation or for 40 years, but... What happens after that generation passes away and their judge passes away? Their faithfulness also passes away. Their sin causes the Lord to hand them over to the Midianites. Now, this doesn't mean that every single hardship in your life is because of a particular sin in your life. I think Job is a great example of a good godly man who has tragic things happen to him. And it's not a direct result of, one, of any particular sin that he commits. But we can say that every single imperfection and difficulty and hardship in the world exists because of sin. Whether it's because of the sinful actions of, of your own or because of the sin that roots all the way back to the fall. And the biggest problem for the Israelites was not an enemy outside that was oppressing them. Their biggest enemy was their own wicked hearts. More significant than their starving stomachs were their sinful souls. And God loved them too much to leave their sins unaddressed. God begins by explaining all the things that he had done for them. Then he told them not to fear his enemies, but the accusation that God levies against them that you have not listened to him. So God begins with 
all the things that, that he had done for them, bringing them out of the land of Egypt by conquering these powers that had oppressed them. Then God clearly explains the commands that he gave to them from long ago. That he wasn't confused or unclear or vague with what he expected of them. And then God levies the accusation. I provided for you. I told you exactly what to do. And you didn't do any of it. This is a great example of how to look at obedience as a Christian. You know, when, when you forget the goodness of the Lord, if you forget all the things that God has done for you, the way that He's redeemed you, the way that He saved you, then, then all you get are His cold commands. And they'll start to feel cold because you don't see the person behind it. You'll devolve into legalistic rule following. And if you ignore God's clear commands, then what happens is you start to justify sin. You harden your heart against sin. So in order for us to obey, you need to remember the grace that God has already given you in the way that he's provided for you, in all his good acts. And then look at God's clear commands and see how to grow in following him. You need both. You need grace. You need commands. That's how we grow in obedience. And this is why we at this church address sin, whether through rebuke, whether through teaching, or whether through church discipline. Because we believe that it isn't enough to just emphasize grace without addressing sin. In fact, it's the grace of God that enables us to be able to address sin directly in the first place. And it's the grace of God that's there that tells you that there is no excuse for disobedience. It doesn't mean that there aren't difficulties. God doesn't deny that obedience is difficult. But difficulty never excuses obedience. Difficulty never excuses obedience. We're called to obey God even when it's hard. We're called to obey God even when things are tough. Those difficulties don't give us a free pass from obedience. Rather, God expects us to obey in those things. That's why for us as a church, we use church discipline. Church discipline is a tool that God has given us to remind one another that obedience is not something that we do on our own timetable. It's not something that we do when we want to or at the time and at the pace that we want to do. God calls us to obey today. We'll reflect more on on God's grace towards those who don't obey him uh, a bit later in the sermon. That's part one of this story, the cry. Israel's cry, God's response. Second part, the call. The call. So Israel's cried out. God has rebuked them of their their, um, cowardly convenience instead of obeying the Lord. And now... God does indeed raise a man to deliver the Israelites. Let's read from verse 11. The angel of the Lord came, and he sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite. His son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, valiant 
Warrior. Now, the wine press is not the place where you expect a warrior to be. The act of threshing wheat usually happens in an open field or in a rock, usually at the highest place on the hill so that you get all the wind that's going on. What you do is you you take your little winnowing fork, which is like a, a pitchfork, and you stab it into the wheat and you chuck it into the air. And as the wind blows at this wheat, all the light stuff, the husks, the, the nasty stuff, blows away with the wind. And then what falls is the grain. And you usually pick a place as high as you can so you get the wind. But the wine press, in contrast, is really in the valley of the hill. And the reason is because you're kind of stomping on grapes and trying to get this wine to press down so that you could get the liquid before uh, you ferment it. And if you want to ferment it, you put it in a cool, dark place, which usually happens in lower areas. So it doesn't make sense for the wine press to be at the top of the hill because then you take all that juice and you have to carry it down the hill. And if you carry water around, you know water's pretty heavy. Liquid's pretty heavy. So wine press is all the way down at the lowest place. And Gideon is not threshing his wheat at the high place, but rather he's threshing wheat at the bottom place. Now, have you ever tried to fly a kite in a basement? No, you don't do that. Why? There's nothing there. So imagine Gideon in the wine press with his little fork, stabs the wheat, chucks it into the air, plop. That's what's going on in this area. He, he might be trying to like blow it with his own breath, trying to get the, the chaff to go away from the wheat, but this is really a pathetic place to be doing this. Why is Gideon doing this? Because he's a coward. He's afraid that if he threshes wheat in the high place, that the Midianites will see that, and they'll take his stuff. So instead, he's in the wine press. He's chucking things where no one else can see him. This is like the Israelite equivalent of being trapped in a junior high locker. And in this place, in this cowardly hiding hole, the angel of the Lord shows up and calls him a valiant warrior. Valiant warrior. Why does the Lord call him a valiant warrior? Not because of anything that's intrinsic in Gideon but because what God will do with him. Because of what God will do with him. But Gideon's response is pretty consistent with his poor location, his poor demeanor. Let's read from verse 13. Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? And where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about? Hasn't the Lord... Uh, They said, hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. So the angel of the Lord shows up and says, the Lord is with you. And Gideon looks right back at the angel and says, no, he's not. He is not with me. Gideon asks where the Lord has been. If God was supposed to be with him. Gideon's expecting signs. He's expecting God to finish the work that he did. But based on his own life, his own experience, his own upbringing, hiding from this king, he sees that God's people are occupied by evil men. And Gideon's jaded. 
Now, what's so ironic about this story is that the angel of the Lord is right in front of him. And he just told him that God is going to do something, right? That God's going to use Gideon to redeem his people. And he told him that he's going to use Gideon to fulfill the very thing that Gideon wants God to be doing. But because God hasn't been working on Gideon's timeline, on Gideon's timetable, Gideon has decided that 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 must mean that God has abandoned him. He can't see what's right in front of him, the angel of the Lord in front of him, because Gideon is jaded. Some of us may be blinded by our own expectations. Maybe life didn't pan out the way you planned. It's easy in those kind of situations to get used to disappointment. Pretty soon it may feel like it's the only constant in your life. And you know what? There is something legitimate in there. And because of the fall, expectations will be unmet for the rest of our life. Get used to disappointment. Disappointments are going to be around. That's not being a Debbie Downer. That's just being a realist. But if that is you, if that is kind of your leaning, your posture in life, I want to warn you against sinful cynicism. Against sinful cynicism. Because just because the world is fallen doesn't mean that it always will be. Doesn't mean that it always will be. God is an optimist. It's not because he's blind to the difficulties in life. He's not ignoring all the problems in the world while he frolics through the meadows. God is an optimist because he can see through the difficulty. He doesn't look away from the difficulty. He's able to see through the difficulty. God knows in his omniscience, in his all-knowing power, how every single thing, all things will work together ultimately for his own glory. God will prove himself to be faithful. And our job as believers, as followers of God, isn't to see how every single little piece pieces uh, fit together, but instead to trust him, to trust him, especially when God gives you clear commands to obey him. And Gideon has an angel right in front of him, and he can't see God moving. Because he's jaded. And so God calls him again in verse 14. Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. So what's God's response? He's saying that he's sending Gideon. He commissions him again. Gideon's response, verse 15. He, being Gideon, said to him, Please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my family's the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my father's family. God tells Gideon to use his strength, and Gideon's response is, I don't have any. He wants to be the one that's picked last. And odds are, Gideon wasn't telling the truth. His dad was rich enough to have idols 
that were placed in the middle of the town. He was, and Gideon was able to call servants to go with him to go obey the Lord later in chapter 6. So he's able to call a large army to follow after him to go conquer the Midianites. None of that stuff is given to you if you're poor. You don't have 10 servants that just do what you say. You don't have a huge idol that the town is able to go and worship. You don't have the ability to call an entire army if you don't have enough food to afford for yourself. So what's Gideon doing here? He's not giving a real excuse. He's not talking in the realm of reality. Gideon is looking for a loophole. He's looking for a loophole. He's trying to make himself look small. At the very least, he's blind to see what God has given him. And his seemingly innocent deference to God and lowering of himself is actually hiding pride. Hiding pride. But also Gideon misunderstands what God's saying. What's, what's God's opening statement to Gideon in, in verse 12? God says, the Lord is with you. What does that mean? That means that Gideon has the Lord. He has the Lord. And so he's going to receive God's help. And then God tells him to use the strength that he has. So God gives Gideon himself and then tells Gideon to go in the strength that he has. And then Gideon's response is that I, I Gideon, can't do it. Gideon isn't thinking about God at all. He's thinking about himself. He's thinking about himself. He's ignoring the stuff that God just said that he gave him. And he's saying that I can't do it. Look at me. I can't bench 200. People don't listen to me. I'm a wimp. I'm so poor. I have no money. He's only thinking about himself. And realize what Gideon's doing here. He's looking at the almighty, holy, all-powerful God, and he's telling him that he's wrong. He's telling God that he's wrong. He's also telling this um, almighty God that his omnipotence, his great power, won't be able to make up for Gideon's own incompetence. Can you see the irony here? Gideon is standing up against God. To defend his own cowardice. Excusing obedience doesn't make you humble. It actually reveals your arrogance. Excusing obedience doesn't make you humble. It actually reveals your arrogance. It's an ironic thing to tell God that you can't do something that he commands you. God's word says that his grace is sufficient for you. If you look at obedience and something that God has clearly commanded and you think that it's too hard, God is telling you that it's actually not. He has given you everything that you need. He's given you his word. He's given you brothers and sisters in Christ who are willing to walk with you in obedience. If you're delaying obedience because you think that you're too weak, if you think that your sin is somehow permissible, because your disposition and your will is too failing. That does not excuse you. It actually reveals your own pride. 
in telling God that His way doesn't account for your weakness. That it doesn't provide for you. That is not enough. Gideon, in defending his cowardice, ends up being prideful. Let's read from verse 16. God reassures him again. But I will be with you, the Lord said to him. You will strike Midian down as if it were one man. I love that response. Gideon says, I suck, God. Like, there's nothing I can do. And God doesn't tell Gideon, you know, you're better than you think you are. You realize that you have some skills? Like, like you are pretty smart. You're able to hold a sword. I think you could still do it. No, God doesn't talk about Gideon at all. God's goal is not to boost Gideon's self-esteem. He doesn't deny Gideon's weakness. Instead, God reminds Gideon who he's with. Lord Almighty will be with Gideon. The ground of Gideon's confidence should be that God is with him. In fact, this innumerable, seemingly infinite enemy, with as many people as there is sand on the seashore, will be like one man. God is telling Gideon that if God is with him, if he's the one that will be behind Gideon, that being with the Lord is like bringing a bazooka to a knife fight. It's not fair. Friends, so much of our own fear and anxiety when we think about obeying God can be tied to us looking inside ourselves instead of looking upward. Looking inward instead of looking upward. And if you look inside yourself, if you look inward, if you try to get a good, hard look at yourself in the mirror, you have every reason to be anxious. Because you're not that great. And if our salvation rests on our own merit and our own work, we may as well just head home and give up. Because it's hopeless. The world is too mighty. And we here are an assembly of wimps. But it's precisely in our wimpy state that God begins to use us. Psalm 8 verse 2 says this, that from the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. God establishes a stronghold to utterly destroy his enemies. But the way that God does this, the way that God destroys his enemies is not through an arsenal of the -the state-of-the-art technology or battalions of the world's best soldiers. He uses people in diapers. He uses babies who can't even wipe themselves. Babies who can't feed themselves are only useful in waking you up in the middle of the night to tell you that they need you. These babies used to silence the greatest oppositions that this world can hurdle towards God. Babies to silence the avenger. And Gideon was definitely being a baby. 
And God intends to use him. And God intends to use you to silence the avenger. Why? Because if, if wimpy Gideon is able to strike down the great nation of Midian, no one should presume that that's because of Gideon's awesomeness. Because of Gideon's might. No, Gideon is a coward. But if God manages to use Gideon to accomplish his purposes, it doesn't point to Gideon's greatness, but it points to God's greatness. It points to the greatness of the one that Gideon has. In the same way for us, as spiritual babies with, with food plastered all over our face, we're used by God to defeat the greatest forces of this world. God can use you. Not because you're great, but because He is. Because He is. Let's read from verse 17. Then He said to him, If I have found favor with you, give me a sign that you are speaking with me. Please do not leave this place until I return to you. Let me bring my gift and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. Gideon wants a sign. God's appearance was not enough. God's command was not enough. Gideon still asks for a sign. God's reassurance and promise wasn't enough for him. He said he wants God to prove it. Words aren't enough. He needs to see it for himself. Friends, there is something deeply despicable about Gideon's request. See, oftentimes we look at the Old Testament and we look at these signs that God does later on in in chapter 6. Gideon does a little fleece test where things get wet and we'll we'll talk about that the next time I preach this sermon. Signs and asking for signs in the Old Testament is not an applaudable thing. You can see that in the scripture reading that we had today in the Gospels. The Pharisees go to Jesus and they demand a sign. And Jesus' response is not, man, this is so great. I have an opportunity to show you how awesome I am. No, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees. He says, you ask for a sign? Do you realize who I am? I'm right here. What more sign do you want? What more sign do you need? And here, Gideon's request is similarly arrogant. Gideon wants God to prove himself. Because God's command is not enough. God has to meet Gideon at his terms. But God is patient. And he says that he will wait until Gideon comes with his test. Let's read from verse 19. So Gideon went prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from a half bushel of flour. He placed the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat with the unleavened bread, put it on this stone, and pour the broth on it. And he did that. The angel of the Lord extended the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire came up from the rock. And consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. <laughs> Gideon goes and offers an idol, and then God uh, and offers an offering, and then God proves that it's him. 
What kind of offering is this? This is the type of offering that was usually given for their own given for their own idols. So Gideon doesn't try to give God an offering according to the way that God commands in Leviticus with with the burnt offerings with with goats and and bulls and so on. He gives him an idol the or an offering the same kind of offering that you give to an idol. So the same kind of offering that you would give to Baal or Asher or any of these other pagan gods. So Gideon comes with this offering and goes to the tree of Ophrah, not to be confused with Oprah, right? He he lays this meat on this stone. And what does God do in response to Gideon treating him just like any other gods? Rather than rebuking him, the angel of the Lord touches it with its the, the meat with the tip of his staff. And even though this meat is not on any kind of firewood or anything that's flammable, the fire shoots forth from the rock and completely consumes this meat. And then the angel of the Lord disappears. Now, normally, if a deity eats or kind of consumes this meal, that means that the God has accepted this offering. That means that the person that gave this offering now has favor with God. God is so patient with Gideon that he's willing to show him a sign that is supposed to be given by pagan idols in order to prove to Gideon that he's with him. So Gideon, so God shows up to Gideon. He gives him clear commands. He persistently tells Gideon that he's with him, and now he's even willing to go as far as to show Gideon with a sign that only Baal and Asherah should be given. That God does approve of Gideon, that he's with him. But look at the way that Gideon reacts in verse 22. When Gideon realized that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Oh no, Lord God, I've seen the angel of the Lord face the face. Gideon thinks that he's going to die because he's seen the angel of the Lord. He's probably remembering stories of the Exodus when the angel of the Lord comes through and kills all of the firstborn. Finally, Gideon's fear is placed in the right place. He's no longer afraid of the Midianites. He's afraid of God. If you understand your sin. And you understand that you're in the presence of a holy, almighty God. You get rightly terrified. Get rightly terrified. And God's kindness in this moment in no way diminishes his majesty. He is almighty. God is glorious. He is terrifying. And when you encounter the Lord in his glory, you tremble. And in this case, Gideon thinks that he's going to die. But God doesn't let him stay in his terror. Verse 23. But the Lord said to him, peace to you. Peace to you. Don't be afraid, for you will not die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it the Lord is peace. It's still in Ophrah of the Bezerites today. Gideon reacts terrified of the Lord, and the Lord tells Gideon to have peace. Don't be afraid, for you will not die. Three assurances for Gideon in response to his unbelief. Peace. Don't be afraid. 
you're not going to die. So Gideon establishes an altar. And the Lord is peace is the name of this altar. For those of you who are here this morning who aren't Christians, or for those of us who are in a season of doubt, maybe you blame God for the difficulties in your life. Maybe you're like Gideon. Maybe you find yourself to be inadequate for the storms of life, being tossed by the wind and the waves, barely able to keep your head above water. And as you struggle, it might feel like God has abandoned you. The truth is that the cause of brokenness in this world is because of us and our sin. In Genesis 3, when you look at the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, Satan meets with the first woman, Eve, and gets her to question the Lord's command. God told Adam that if he ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, that he would die. And what's Satan's response to to that, to that command? You will certainly not die. Says the exact opposite. He deceives the woman. He deceives Adam and Eve, and they both eat of the fruit. And what happens? Immediately, their eyes are open to see their nakedness, and they flee to hide from the Lord. Because of their sin, the world was cursed and broken, and they were cast out of the garden. And where do we find Gideon in this story? Gideon is hiding. He's fleeing. Not the Lord, but the world. He's been so burdened by the difficulties of this wilderness life that he's lost faith in God's promises. He doesn't even believe that God will be able to deliver his people. Even in the face of an angel, he doesn't believe it. His heart's been hardened by disappointment after disappointment. And it's when he's confronted with the power of God Almighty, that he cries out in terror, fearing for his life. Gideon finally feels the nakedness of his sin. His worst fears have been realized. Hiding. Gideon has now been utterly exposed. And what does God say to Gideon? As he cries out in terror, you will not die. That phrase, previously used to deceive and destroy humanity, becomes God's promise to Gideon that calms his fears. Instead of condemnation, God offers Gideon peace. Peace. Not wrath. Not judgment. Not the justice that Gideon deserves. Instead, God gives Gideon what he's been really searching for. The craving that drove him to the lowest crevice of the earth, hiding from all those around him. Gideon gets true peace. What encouragement to look at Gideon's failures. This coward, the one who questioned God's goodness, who refuse to obey, who demands sinfully for a sign from the Lord, receives not judgment like he deserved. I mean, think about it. There are so many times and opportunities for God to just give up on Gideon and choose someone else. But rather than wrath, 
Gideon gets peace. God's kindness is not contingent on Gideon's greatness or else God would have abandoned Gideon long ago. No, God's kindness is not so flimsy as to fall at the face of our rebellion. It overcomes your opposition. It overcomes your rebellion. God's kindness is dependent on himself, not us, not us. And look at what Gideon calls this altar that he builds. The Lord is peace. The Lord is peace. Not the Lord offers peace. Not the Lord gives peace. But the Lord is peace. If you're not a Christian, this is exactly what you need. The world has been broken and marred by sin. You and I are rebels. Enemies of a good, holy God. But God, in His kindness, sent His Son, Jesus Christ. Truly man. And truly God, who lived the perfect life that we never could. He called himself the Prince of Peace. He showed grace to prostitutes, murderers, and the outcast. And on the cross, he bore the penalty that you and I deserve for our rebellion and our sin. And he was terrified of the cross. So much so that he sweat blood. And yet, rather than choosing cowardly convenience, Jesus chose obedience to his Father. And God poured out on him the wrath that we deserve instead of us. And Jesus died. But on the third day, he rose from the dead, completely paying the price for sin so that instead of being cast out, Instead of being rightly judged and condemned for our sin, Christ instead offers you the gift of peace. Jesus offers you true peace this morning. The Lord is peace. Jesus offers you himself. Trust him. Repent. Ask God for forgiveness for your sin. Trust him for your salvation. And you, sinner, can have peace today. Today. Call out to Him. Ask Him to save you. And for you, Christian, what troubles you? What torments you so? What stirs up the storms inside your heart that overwhelm you? God this morning wants to remind you of true peace. Of true peace. Not the temporary security of our plans, or shoving our problems under the rug, God has given you Himself. The biggest problem in this world has been solved. We have nothing to fear but God Himself. And instead of a sinful fear that pushes us away from the Lord out of fear of what He's going to do to us, God instead has given you Himself. He's given you true peace. Friend, have you gone to Him? Have you laid your cares and anxieties before him? 1 Peter 5 6 through 7 says that God cares for you. This Almighty God cares for you. You don't need to run from God, you can run to him. You can echo the prayer of David in Psalm 32 that you are my hiding place. 
you protect me from trouble. The, the wine press of your own plans or of your own security is a sorry replacement for the arms of your Savior. Run to Jesus. He can shield you. He can protect you. I'll close with the words of Charles Spurgeon because he just says it better than I can. He says, meditating on this passage in Judges, he says this, Notice, brethren, and Cicerin, I guess, the great power of God is speaking home the truth. Suppose I salute you with, brethren, peace be to you. That would be a sweet word. But when the Lord says it, you feel the peace itself. Suppose Peter stood up in that boat which was tossed upon the Galilean lake and said to the waves, be still. The waves would not have taken much notice of him. And the whistling blast would have defied him. But when Jesus said, peace, be still, the rampant lions of the sea crouched at his feet. There was a great calm. Oh, at the great master's voice would sound the requiem of trouble in every tempest-driven heart by saying, peace be unto you, so that you may become perfectly restful in your God. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that this peace can't come from us. We can't plan our own security or earn it for ourselves. We need you. So we thank you, God, that you are sufficient enough for the greatest fears of our life, for everything that troubles us. Pray, God, that you would help us to be able to trust you in the midst of the storms of this life. We thank you that you've given us Christ to be more than enough for everything that we need. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.